I don't know who you are, young lady, but you certainly know how to handle yourself well. Batman! Bat girl? Bat girl? Bat girl! Yes, bat girl. Biff Bam Pal. This is Batman Land. Our purpose here is quite serious. Each week we chat about the 1966 Batman TV show. We might as well get a few laughs out of it. We discuss the episodes that aired this week on SBS Vice Land. My name is Dan Barrett. I work on an SBS site here called The Guide. And joining me is my colleague, who never stops preaching about the virtues of flower power, man. It's Nick Bassoon. I'm in the pocket of big flower. Yeah, no, that doesn't surprise me. Also in the pocket of big egg. Really? Both are very relevant to uh, today's episode. That does surprise me. Not that it's relevant, but I just I wouldn't have taken you for someone of whom is willing I'm, to take money from Big Egg. I love eggs. Mm. It's a wonderful product. Everyone should eat them. They're getting their money's worth. Yeah. Nick Bassin, it is valuable that you are obviously cowtailing the benefits of both because we're talking about both flowers and eggs this week. That's a happy coincidence. Very happy. We have two episodes we're discussing. There's Louis the Lilac, which aired on the 26th of October, 1967, starring... Milton Berle. And we've also got The Og and I from the 2nd of November, 1967, starring... Vincent Price. And... Anne Baxter. Oh, that's right, Ann Baxter. Has uh, Ann Baxter been on the show before? Returning guest, Ann Baxter. We may remember her from the great two-parter on the show, Zelda the Great... Oh. Who could forget? I haven't seen that one. Does she have a Russian accent in that one also? No, I, I don't even remember what Zelda the Great's deal was, to be honest. I remember Anne Baxter being in it, and I remember thinking that she was far better than the role really deserved. Now, Nick Bassine, these are two truly special episodes of Batman. I think we can both agree. Very special. Now, look, here's the thing. I watched both of them. I know I took them in. I know I was highly entertained by the 60-odd minutes worth of Bat-related entertainment. But the power of Batman has washed over me with the idea. I just don't know what happened. Or nothing. You got to start paying attention to the actual plot of these stories. I should probably leave myself some notes. Kind of like that guy in Memento. Maybe just tattoo myself with... Yeah, something. Mm. But anyway, because I don't have a tattoo needle with me just yet... Can you remind me what happened this week's Batman? Okay, so there are no flowers in Gotham City for the flower in. I mean, it's freaky, man. Like, how can we take a flower love trip? So Louis the Lilac distributes lilacs to all the hippies and kidnaps Princess Primrose, who is apparently the lead hippie. Cool, man. You'll blow your mind. Barbara Gordon tries to tell her useless father, Commissioner Gordon, about the lack of flowers, but he's terrible at his job. Batman is out. Nothing is uh, going. Now, Commissioner, watch your blood pressure. So she just calls Batman herself. This is Batman, Miss Gordon. Batman and Robin investigate a flower shop where Louis the Lilac poisons Robin. Look out, this could be poison all the Bulgaria. And knocks Batman unconscious. They're tied up by man-eating lilacs who don't actually eat them. Man-eating lilacs have no teeth, Robin. They untangle themselves and fight Louis the Lilac's goons. Batgirl shows up and helps out, macing Louis the Lilac with some kind of spray that makes him all moldy. Don't use that spray! And then Egghead shows up on a donkey and delivers Commissioner Gordon a sandwich with eggs. I ordered a roast beef sandwich. This is a poached egg You don't say. Then kidnaps him with the help of his accomplice, Olga. I am Imperial Queen of Cossacks. He wants an egg tax, the fiend. It's sort of an egg-sized tax, Batman. Olga steals the samovar of Genghis Khan, which Batman and Robin hide in. They try to free Gordon, <laughs> but Egghead slash Olga gas their asses. Olga, you exquisite, diabolical genius. Olga wants to kill Batman and Robin slowly in borscht. I am making great Spesrovian borscht of my career. But Egghead wants it done quickly. Let's exterminate them. One of her henchmen knocks him out 
and she proposes that she make love to Batman and threatens to marry him. Of course, Batushka. Alfred tracks down Commissioner Gordon from his horrible stench. The unmistakable aroma of Wellington number four. Batgirl joins him and saves Batman as usual. Egghead makes all the heroes cry with onion eggs. Have a good cry, Batman. You need it. And escapes. I have a question for you. Yeah, yeah. What have we got? How do you pronounce the word L-I-L-A-C? Look, I feel like I'm suddenly... I'm putting you on the spot. A little bit. Yeah. Well, I would say lilac. Not lilac? Who says lilac? Like they pronounce it on this show? Is the Commissioner Gordon calling it lilac? Everybody was. Lilacs for my flower children. Look at all these lilacs, Robin. This lilac-colored card. Lilacs digestive processes. Those lilacs. Strange species of man-eating lilac. Poison lilacs. Lila's lilac shop. And I have some other very rare lilacs in the rear room, if you'd like to see them. Milton Burrow kept saying lilac, and it was throwing me off. I didn't understand why they're pronouncing it that way. That is baffling. I'm used to Neil Hamilton, who plays Gordon, to have some very weird line readings. Yes. Every week there's something different with that yeah, guy. Yeah, him too. Yeah, but... It's very strange. Was it lilac? Lilac. Lilac. Like some kind of weird, maybe British pronunciation of it? I don't understand. It was a different time. A very different time. Hmm. I really like there was a line from William Dozier at the very beginning, the narrator, and he said, is day the only thing that's blooming? Is day the only thing that's blooming? Yeah. Or isn't blooming? Weird. <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised by mm. the, in the Milton Burrell episode because I was ready for some very serious anti-hippie stuff. That's what I was expecting as well. And while I don't think it's necessarily a sensitive, considered portrayal of hippies and what they're about, at the same time, it wasn't really offensive. No, it didn't have the usual disdain. Mm. And Because um, you and I talk on the show a fair bit about how this is not a show that taps into the counterculture very much. No. This is a show that is very rigid. This it's counter-counterculture. Well, it's just mature mainstream sort of Eisenhower politics. Close haircut, glasses, mm. suit. Yeah. Fedora. Like Robin is the perfect character for the Batman universe and the way he's depicted in the show, in that he's just a very straight car, well-meaning kid, doesn't really step outside of the lines. Yeah, and same with Batman. Follow the rules and that's that. Mm. But these hippies, while cartoonish, were very nice, and Batman and Robin say some very nice things about them. They did. Now, not only did they say some nice things, but Robin has an amazingly great line, which taps in quite heavily to the flower power... Uh, considerations of the episode. The flower children think we're cool, man. Like we turn them on, you know? Yeah, he says it totally seriously. Yeah. It's very funny. It's great. Like Burt Ward, I suspect, was reading that line over and over, like for weeks leading up to this episode. <laughs> you could just tell he wanted to deliver with the gravitas that he delivered eventually. Yeah, it was very serious. And I appreciated Batman's take where they're just trying to bring more love into the world and... Um, mm. And that's kind of nice. Even if Barbara Gordon's fairly dismissive of them, like she talks about her friend who now goes by the name of Princess Primrose, and she says that she may have flipped a petal or two. two. Yeah, that was very dismissive, as well as the idea that hippies just rename themselves because they're whacked out on goofballs. Mm. The fact that they're whacked out on goofballs has nothing at all to do with why they've renamed themselves. Coincidence. You know, that was the only thing missing from this characterization was the goofballs. Yeah. Now, Princess Primrose, just while she's on my mind, did you recognize her? I took a drawing class with her in college. Okay. Well, she would have been a mature age student at that point, I suspect. Mm. 
the actress Sky Aubrey making her second appearance in the Batman Land series. Uh, she was with us in the season finale of season two. Uh, as an actress she? by the name of Sky Aubrey, and I think she was the Mister Freeze's like gangster's mole. Oh, really? But I remember this one because she was married to the producer of the Superman movies, and we spent way too long talking about that. Oh, on that that's episode. right. Mm. That's a classic episode of Batman Land. Yeah, go back and tell your kids about it. Yeah. What did you think of Milton Berle's performance? For Milton Berle, because I'm not a child of 1952, I don't really know Milton Berle that well outside of general pop culture. So I've got memories of seeing clips from, say, the Texaco Star Theatre, or at least sort of uh, a few sort of still photographs of it, because I don't think they actually ever recorded the show. I think this is just one of these things where TV used to go out live and they weren't recording them. Right. So there's actually some notes I came across uh, while doing my research on this one. Milton Berle, because originally the Texaco Star Theatre, he was known for radio prior to TV, but when he went to TV, like the Texaco Theatre, like that was the show. Apparently that show, which ran from 1948 through to 1949, was responsible for doubling the number of TVs in the US. So oh, wow. this is early year of adoption of it, but like it went up to 2 million TV sets in the country. Wow. And they attribute it just to him. But because of the power that he wielded, because big radio star, obviously moving a lot of TV units in the early year of TV, like, you know, that's a pretty strong commodity and, you know, you've got a strong negotiating power. He moved to NBC from ABC, which is where that show had aired. And when he moved to NBC, he was after two things. One of them was instead of live broadcast, shoot on film. And so that way there could be repeats and you could probably make some money off that. Uh, they said no to that. It had to be live broadcast. So he didn't get that. But he did get a life contract from NBC. That's right. I read about that. Yeah. Some kind of unprecedented um, contract, 30 mm. years or something. Yeah. That said, they didn't go through all 30 years because the sheen of Mills and Bell wore off pretty quickly. Uh, so a couple of years afterwards, they released him from that contract. But it was worth like a million dollars a year. Right. Which that's massive back then. What I know him to be famous for is uh, doing a joke in drag or doing something in drag. Well, it was known as being Uncle Milty. I'm sorry, what? That was, they is called that him Uncle the name Milty. of the character? That was the name of the character he played. The drag one? Yeah. Maybe one of the major takeaways that I have about Milton Bell, and this is one of these uh, pop cultural bits of trivia, which I don't think people will be able to separate from the great man himself, is apparently he was a man of, and I don't know how to phrase this delicately, a significant endowment. That's very delicate. Incredibly delicate. Well done. Is it true? All I can say is that I'm still working on it. That's been thrown at me so many times, that question. I don't know what's so thrilling about, is it true? I really don't know. No, I've had a little success with it, even recently at 88. So it seems quite true. All I know that when I get an erection, I black out. <laughs> He didn't go parading it, the news around, but I think he acknowledged it. He was more than willing to own the story. Yes. The narrative surrounding him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this episode's a little bit interesting where we're used to these two-part episodes where you've got the like death trap that they fall into at the end of the first episode. The thing is, this is only the one-episode storyline, so they put in a death trap midway through, which seems to preoccupy Batman and Robin for at least 10 minutes in his story. Nick, what did you think about the man-eating lilacs? Sorry, lilacs. Um, I've never been more scared for the dynamic duo in my life. I've never been more concerned about my valuable free time in my life. 
How, how did you think they got the the man-eating lilacs to move? Do you think it was somebody with hands in the lilacs shaking them around? Well, like with jazz hands? Yeah. Or do you think it was animatronic? I presume it would be like the former. Yeah. Yeah. No way they sprung for animatronics. Not a third show. season Batman. So around this time, Little Shop of Horrors came out, I believe, with Jack Nicholson, the original. Yeah, so like it was probably like three or four years before Batman. So, and that's a huge man-eating, um, well, it's like a Venus flytrap or yeah, uh, something like that? It's Audrey, it's the Venus flytrap. Yeah, and th this stuff is was not as menacing as that. Let's just say that. Look, I would say this definitely is not the most menacing death trap that we've experienced on the show so far. And they just kind of get out of it. Mm. Now, what I thought was a little bit strange is that Batman doesn't really seem prepared for this. Like, there's so many episodes where he's got something in his utility belt. They ate his utility belt. Yeah, but surely he could have done something from his utility belt before the thing got through the utility belt. And why is the utility belt not designed for this very situation? Why would they eat the utility belt first and not, you know, his hands or something? Also, Batman and Robin have been running around a fair bit beforehand. What are you saying? I'm just saying it'd be a bit gross to eat. Like, maybe put that off till you have yeah, it'd to. Be, it'd be salty and delicious. No, it's like when you're, like, eating something on your plate, which you don't necessarily really want, you put that off till after. Like, the broccoli comes towards the end of the meal. You mean when you're eating something sweaty? Is that what you're saying? Just something gross. Gosh, Batman, what a way to go, eating alive by a lilac. So, at one point, Robin says, Holy Luther Burbank. Apparently, Luther Burbank was an American botanist. How is he dropping references to botanists and horticulturalists on this show? Who's supposed to get that? What you have to realize is that while it's a bit weird us talking about this in 2018, back in the mid-60s, all the four to eight-year-old kids who were watching the show, they definitely knew their botanists, they knew their horticulturalists, they were across all of this. It's just, it's a time okay. difference, Nick. All right, I gotcha. Mm. Yeah, sure. Now, I just wanted to bring out like maybe a casting thing in this one. There was the character in it, Lila, who you'd remember she was the woman dealing with the lilacs with Louis the Lilac. The actress who played her was named Lisa Seagram, and I thought she was a bit interesting because she actually ended up going off to Hawaii to run an acting school. Was she responsible for Hawaii Five-O? Look, probably not the show itself, but certainly a number of actors of whom you've seen there in secondary roles, I'm sure, have come through the Lisa Seagram School of Acting. Uh, she also ended up moving to LA again, where she continued her acting school. I don't know if it runs to this day, but it's kind of interesting seeing her go from Batman to there. I think Batman was one of her last on-screen roles. Well, she had a passion for um, teaching. But in terms of final on-screen credits, Dwight Taylor, who wrote this episode, this is his last IMDb listing at least for anything, and it's the only episode of Batman that he wrote. Or maybe it was just, a, it was just some sort of side hobby. Well, it just seems to be like an end of career thing. Hmm. I don't think there was anything about this episode that got him blackballed from the industry. Have we talked about um, how this show um, plays with or evokes imagery of Donald Trump? Uh, not this week. What stood out for you? Well, at one point, I think towards the end, Commissioner Gordon has got his arms around his daughter, much <laughs> like a certain president around his daughter. Mm. Very close. A certain president who remained unnamed. Yes. And it's, um, she's got her right arm like, behind his neck and, you know, they kiss and it's um, very um, presidential, let's say. It does seem presidential. Yeah. Now, because you're going to the US in the next couple of weeks, mm. I'm concerned about your visa application. So. I'm terrified. Actually, no, you'd be a resident of the US still, aren't you? 
Well, I'm a citizen. Yeah, because you have a passport. Yeah, because you haven't become a citizen here yet. But you don't give up an American passport because my children have both. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, let's move on. Yeah. Louis the Lilac, a character created explicitly for this episode of television. It's been seen since, though. So while Louis the Lilac hasn't become a comic book character, apparently in the recent Brave and the Bold cartoon series, Louis the Lilac made about four or five appearances throughout What's the course the of the show. What's the Brave and the Bold? So Brave and the Bold is an interesting Batman cartoon from a couple of years ago where the creators of it were kind of just let to do whatever they want. So the main character of Batman is voiced by Diedrich Bader, who was uh, the friend from the Drew Carey show. And you've probably also seen him in films like Office Space and he's in Veep. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah that, that guy? guy's great. Yeah. And very he's got a very funny. sort of fun sort of cartoonish voice. So anyway, he plays a really sort of funny Batman. But essentially every episode of Batman Brave and the Bold teams up Batman with a usually obscure character from DC's history. So it's usually like another superhero character, but it's never like the main people. So it's very rare that it's seen with like Green Lantern or Superman, which while that certainly happens, it's not really the driving force. Probably the most recurring sort of big name character he teams up with is Aquaman, who's uh, portrayed as like this completely buffoonish, like king of the sea. Uh, he's, he's a lot of fun. But the villains that they face in the show are usually fairly obscure as well. And in a couple of episodes, Louis the Lilac's turned up. I don't think he's been the main focal point of the like villain of the week storyline, but there was an episode called Day of the Dark Knight, and apparently he was seen in the episode leading a large team of supervillains trying to escape from the prison in the Batman show called Iron Heights. And while that prison escape was foiled, the supervillains that he was trying to take out included characters from the Batman TV show. So it was Egghead, King Tut, Marsha Queen of Diamonds, and Shame, which I think is a very funny oh, nod. Yeah, that's cool. Mm. Do you think uh, the Dozier estate gets a little uh, gets to see a little bit of that action? There's probably a couple of pennies flying that way. But that's it's fun. a very fun in joke, I think. So I get this happened, I guess, and so it, I don't know. I didn't even hear about it, so I don't know how successful it was. Was it Brave very successful? Oh, look, it was reasonably successful. It went for about four or five seasons. Because a cartoon version of Batman 66 mm. could probably be a lot of fun. You'd think so, but there seems to be a thing where anytime they try doing it, they just kind of screw it up a little bit. They did a movie, right? So there was that animated movie, which yeah. I haven't seen, but I haven't really heard good things about either. No, I tried to watch a little bit of it. Well, Actually, it was you telling me that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there's also the Batman 66 comic, which I thought was kind of cool. So the idea of it was that it's the comic books in the yeah, style right. of the 60s TV show. But the thing is that if you actually watch the, like while the art kind of looks like the TV show, it doesn't really bring a TV set aesthetic to the show, uh, aesthetic to the comic. So essentially like there'll be scenes with like Batman as is like on top of the aeroplane as it's going through the sky. But it just kind of feels like normal comic book theatrics right. as opposed to thinking of it as though it was a TV show. So do you, you think a new incarnation would have to be trapped in the, in the, the production limitations yeah, of the show? Absolutely. Because then it feels authentic. Because <laughs> as soon as you don't do that, then it doesn't really feel like the 60s Batman. That's interesting because no, it wouldn't feel like that. But, but part of the fun would be opening it up to a new world. A little bit, but the thing is that there's already Batman comics. So the only thing that you're really taking to that new world is the art style of seeing Adam West in that yeah, world. Yeah, goofy. Um... And so that stops being fun after a little while. Like It's kind of more fun to see them recreating a 60s aesthetic. And even if you set in the modern day, but have that same look going on, like there's a lot of fun you can play around with that kind of a yeah, dynamic. maybe that's it. Like they could be rebooting all the characters in that Batman 60s style. Absolutely. There's a really cool painted bit of art where you can see Batman and Robin driving along in the Batmobile, and above them is the George Reeves Superman 
yeah. flying there. So yeah, it's kind of like kind that of 50s TV versus the 60s Batman. And that's a really like just great bit of art. I really like fun. that. And so you could do that in the comics where you've got like the 50s Batman. Who do we pitch this to? Well, I guess DC Comics is the company. But the problem is that they've already got the 60s Batman comic book series running. Right. Where they did do a crossover with the Green Hornet characters. But again, like it was just kind of standard comic book theatrics. Yeah, it didn't okay. really feel authentic. Hmm. And no one really talks up the greatness of these books. They just kind of keep on being published because there's obviously a market for them. But I kind of feel that if they brought that TV aesthetic to the world, like people would be talking about it as this great sort of pop art triumph. The thing is, if they got really talented, funny writers, mm. it could be hilarious. Yeah, there's a lot of fun to be had with it. But it just kind of sits there. It doesn't... Right. Yeah, it, it bothers me. So there's a weird thing that happens right at the end of the episode where it clearly seems like they were maybe about like 30 seconds short of anything to do in the episode. So they've got this extended sequence of Batgirl, like on a Batgirl cycle, heading back to the Batgirl like apartment. It's a riveting uh, sequence. It's very bizarre. Well, it's similar to they just want an excuse to to play the song, right? And look, I'm okay with that because I love that song. Well, it's, in a, it's a toe tapper. Mm. I mean, the lyrics are a little bit, uh, a bit on the whiffy side. Oh, I, I find them very deep. Um, is it bad girl, bad girl, who do you know? Who's your baby? Is yeah, something like that. Yeah, something like, yeah it's pretty mm. good. Nick, second episode of the show, we see Egghead return. That's right. Yeah, Vincent Price. Who is delightful. And Baxter returns as a different character this time through. And um, never looked more like Meredith Baxter Bernie, uh, as far as I can tell. And Baxter, unrelated. Right. Mm. But anyway, stunning re resemblance. So this had a bunch of big stuff in it. The guy from Gilligan's Island is in it, and his name is Gilligan. What's his name? Uh, you saw about Alan Hale Jr., who everyone knows him for his famous role on Gilligan's Island, where he played Jonas Grumby. The skipper? Sorry, Jonas the skipper Grumby, if you want to go for the pedestrian. No one knows Jonas Grumby. Everyone knows that he's Jonas Grumby in the same way that everyone knows that Gilligan's first name was Willie. And what? Is that his first name, Willie Gilligan? That's his full name, Willie Gilligan. His name was Willie. Willie Gilligan. And then the professor was uh, <laughs> Professor Roy Hinckley. Roy Hinckley? Yeah. How do you know all of this stuff? These just I facts just, that everybody the, knows, Nick. It's the, just the Professor Gilligan and the Skipper. Next to be telling me you don't even know what Mary Jane's surname is, let's just continue with the conversation. Mary Jane Watson? I really don't know. Um, he was great. That guy mugs like nobody on 60s television. Yeah, he was fantastic. As soon as I saw him come out the room, I was very excited. Yeah, it was delightful. I wish they had named him something a little bit more creative than Gilligan. I mean, that feels like a... Yeah. Um, they should have called him Hinkley. After... Um, after Professor Roy Hinkley, <laughs> the professor on Gilligan's I mean, Island. What was the name of the guy that tried to uh, assassinate Ronald Reagan? Anyway, that's not him. That's not the professor on Gilligan's Island, as far as we know. No, as far as I'm aware, the professor on Gilligan's Island and no stage tried to perform an assassination on a sitting U.S. president. So we've got another fictional country, Bessarovia, mm. which is a stand-in for Russia because everything is Russian. Uh, all the references are Russian, borscht, uh, samovars, um, and there was something else. Now, I kind of like it in a broad comedy when they have a fictionalized name rather than a real one. But I'm wondering if in this show they actually had a fictionalized country name purely because it's the middle of the Cold War. Like, I'm not sure if they really wanted to portray Russia specifically by name. Maybe, but they've done it before with other, uh, with 
countries that were not involved in the Cold War. So I, I don't really That's understand. That's true. But most of those had very muddled cultural references, whereas this feels very specific. Yeah, this was very specific. Nick, can I ask you a personal question? Please. How do you like your eggs? Uh, scrambled, okay. just like uh, Chief O'Hara. Yeah, I found a... Well, in the episode, you got Commissioner Gordon at the beginning who, uh, he's talking about the scrambled eggs on his sandwich. Sunny side up. Sunny side up. What's the deal? Uh, I've never seen a sandwich like that. It looked really... Unappetizing. Unappetizing. And I just don't understand what the egghead's deal is. He says egg a lot. He puts egg in words a lot. Excellent. And he gives people eggs. And he wants an egg tax. This is one of the least menacing villains on this show. At the same time, though, I think this is probably the most inspired villain plot where I don't quite understand how he's able to enforce the tax that's been put on the people <laughs> of Gotham City. But at the same time, it'd be quite lucrative. Yeah, right, because it's a tax on every egg. Yeah. You have to assume a major thriving metropolitan hub like Gotham. I don't know. If you get Vincent Price as a master of horror, you'd think you'd make him a little more scary. Now, the thing is, there's a scene where he's throwing eggs at the ground and, like, gas is coming out of them as he tries to gas their ass. That's right, yes. Yeah. And that reminded me of, do you remember that TV show from the mid to late 90s called Now and Again? I remember a movie with Christina Ricci and Susan Sarandon called Now and Again. No, that's a different thing. Uh, this is one, it was from <laughs> the creator of Moonlighting, uh, Glenn Gordon Caron. And the first episode has John Goodman being, uh, I think, falls in front of a train. But then they save his mind and put into the fit young body of Eric Close. And he's kind of got some, like strong abilities, but at the same time, he has to hide himself from his family. But there was an ongoing villain throughout the course of that series called the Eggman, and he used to, like, throw eggs, and there was, like, gas coming out, just like Vincent Price here. A real villain. That yeah. was a real thing that you're talking about. It was a real thing. This isn't a fictional thing I've created. Well, I'm not a, um, I'm not a farmer, mm. but if you feed chickens onions, do their eggs then explode into onion gas that makes people weep? Look, I'm not a scientist, but I believe that's actually accurate. Okay. Yeah. All right, I'm just checking. Now, there's an interesting thing with these episodes where this is a two-part episode we're watching, but when it was produced, it was actually a three-part episode. Oh, my God. So what we're seeing now is chapters one and three comprise of the two parts that we'll be watching. And then in like about five episodes' time, episode two gets dropped in as an episode. So I don't know how they edit around that, but it's going to be fascinating to watch in a few weeks' time. What a time the 60s were, where you could just uh, throw everything out of order, do whatever you want. It's like the Wild West. Absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. So I, I'm fascinated to see how this is going to work. But we do end on a cliffhanger, Nick. What happens in the final moments of this episode? So um, asses have been gassed, and Egghead and Olga um, escape. Mm. And we're left to wonder, will they be caught? Will everything ever be all right again? I mean, I presume everything will be okay, but, you know, we'll see. I was pretty unsettled by the open weeping of our heroes when I think just teary eyes and maybe passing out could have done, but they the choice was made. No, no, you guys, you should cry. You don't cry when there's onions in your eyes. You just, your eyes get teary. Look, you've never seen me when a Hello Fresh box arrives in my house and I start chopping. <laughs> <laughs> I have to cook again. Nick, we like to end every Batman land with what lessons we've learned this week. Uh, what did you take away? I had a couple of takeaways. One was based on a Commissioner Gordon quote where he tells his daughter to take it easy and says, a good librarian is a calm librarian. That was pretty good, and uh, which I didn't know before. And also, um, when um, Olga tells Batman she's going to marry him and Egghead, 
because uh, in her country, she can have six husbands. He says you should abide by our customs and not yours. So I learned that assimilation message. That's kind of gross. Uh, look, my lesson for this week, and we've already talked about this, but it's just such a hell of a lesson that I think really bears repeating. The flower children, they think Batman and Robin are cool, man. They turn them on, you know? Yeah, valuable lesson. Very valuable. Thanks, Robin. This brings us to the end of another Batman land. Nick Bassine, you're on the Twitter. Where do people find you? You can find me at Twitter slash egghead underscore abide by our customs, one word, dot net. I've got to get you a class on how the internet works. Or you can just go at Nick Bassine and, and you can find me there probably. That works too? Yeah. Okay. People can find me on the Twitter at the Dan Barrett. And if you're enjoying the podcast, leave reviews on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, use the hashtag around the place Batman land. It doesn't even need to be in conversation about Batman. Just use the hashtag, just general day-to-day discourse. Nick Bassine, you're on another podcast. It's called The Playlist. What goes on there? Well, Dan, I'm glad you asked. It's a frank and open cultural conversation that explores TV and movies. Indeed. Interviews, reviews, whatnot. Yeah. Hmm. News and views. It's a hell of a listen. Yeah. Anyway, folks, we'll be back next week with the thrilling conclusions to this two-parter. Oh, my God. What will happen? What will happen? I'm, I'm, I'm asking you what will happen. And I'm asking you, Nick, what oh, will happen? Oh, right. But you're not going to be with us next week. No. Yeah. You're off jaunting. So you'll have to um, text me. Okay, I'll be sure to let you know what happened. Yeah, please do. Folks, we'll see you then. Bye.